Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Welcome to episode 50. Yeah, that's a milestone. I am going to bet that there is a 100% chance that you will find this episode a winner for sure. What is it about? Think about a vibrant mini city with a blend of retail, restaurants, luxury condos, rental apartments, 510 of which are affordable, a luxury hotel, and yes, maybe you guessed right, a casino, all on Manhattan's largest undeveloped parcel of land. So, without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest, Michael Hirschman, CEO of the Soloviev Group. Thanks so much for being here today, Michael. Bill, it's a pleasure to be with you today, particularly on the 50th episode of your podcast. I feel very privileged. Michael, I am super excited to talk about the Freedom Plaza Project with you today. But before we start, may I mention a few memorable events the Realty Speak audience will surely know? And will you tell us how you fit into all of that? Yeah, sure. Vietnam, Serpico, and Watergate. So, Bill, I've had somewhat of a diverse background, and I often get the question, how do you fit into real estate given everything else that you've done? Sometimes I'm not sure of the answer myself. I have to take you back in history, though, to explain. My dad died when I was young, and my mom was a single mother raising three young, rambunctious boys. She needed to make a living, and she went into real estate. She became a broker and dealt in residential and commercial real estate out on Long Island, where we live. My father was in the Army during World War II at Fort Tilden. This is important because a lot of our conversations as I was growing up had to do with loyalty to the country, patriotism, and that inspired me when I was in college to drop out of college and serve in the Army during uh, the Vietnam War, a time of great unrest in our country. We we tend to think today of the various calamities facing us in our country and forget that we have faced somewhat similar issues in the past around Vietnam, around Watergate. But to get back to the heart of your question, after my service, I came back, And I went into my mother's real estate business. I began to cut my teeth. And at night, I went back to school here in Manhattan at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I was in military intelligence. I had an affinity for investigative intelligence work. And during a speech one day at John Jay that was given by the deputy commissioner of the New York City Department of Investigation, a gentleman by the name of David Dawson, I was inspired by what he was saying about the role, particularly in fighting corruption, that the New York City Department of Investigation played. And so I went up to him afterwards, and it turned out that it was during a period where they were heavily involved in internal investigations of the New York City Police Department based on corruption allegations. And they didn't want to have only police investigating police. So he asked me to join, and I did. 
I continued with my education at night, finally getting a degree in criminal justice. But it was during the period of the Serpico investigation, a period of, uh, again, a lot of turmoil uh, here in New York City about police corruption and about a very brave police officer who refused to give in to the temptations of corruption and paid a high cost for it. It was during that time when David Dawson, that same deputy commissioner, was appointed as the assistant general counsel for something called the Senate Watergate Committee in Washington, D.C. Very early on, and no one knew what that, that even was, but he called me and he said, Michael, is there a chance you might take a leave of absence to come here? There's been a break-in at the Democratic Committee National Headquarters in Washington, D.C., and we've set up this committee to investigate the break-in. I went to my boss at that time. I had made a slight change. I was then working for the New York State Special Corruption Prosecutor's Office, part of the Attorney General's Office. I asked my boss, look, could I, there's a break-in in Washington. They need some investigative help. Uh, can I take a couple weeks off and go down and see if I can help them? Well, uh, obviously— It took two, a little more than a couple of weeks, didn't it? Two weeks turned into several years— and there are a lot of analogies between what happened back then and what, what's happening today. And there are differences, but the, the, the analogies in part have to do with politicians who felt that they were uh, above the rule of law. And what many people don't remember during that time of the Watergate hearings was Richard Nixon, the then president, was considering instituting martial law in the country because of the political unrest, because of the demonstrations. In any event, Watergate was a watershed for me personally. I had never been involved in politics before. I thought that I had seen and done everything working in the anti-corruption environment in New York City. First couple months, I said to myself, I said, you know, I wonder if we're doing the right thing, attacking the president of the United States. Remember, I come from a background where loyalty, honesty, and integrity, and patriotism was very important. But as the evidence started flowing in, it became very clear to me that we were doing the right thing, and that if we couldn't rely on the White House to uh, be transparent, to be accountable, to be honest— then we all would be in trouble. I don't know. What's that term? History repeats itself? In some respects, there are analogies. Uh, there are differences as well. We didn't have the sort of drift towards authoritarianism that we're seeing now, not only domestically, but overseas. And this plays in, by the way, to a conversation I'm sure we're going to have shortly about the Museum of Freedom and, and Democracy. Which is part of the project. Which is part of the project. Authoritarianism poses great dangers to any society, but particularly to a society that is a democratic society like ours. We can lose freedoms rather quickly. We can turn in a very bad direction rather quickly. And we all have a responsibility, regardless of what your politics are or policies are, to make sure that the underlying democratic principles which drive our success, which drive our country, which are so meaningful to our people, remain in place. 
and the moral compass, we, we would be a lot better off if everyone held on to the moral compass. And I think this is a perfect time to segue into the meat of our talk, which is the Freedom Plaza. And the question I was going to ask, and, and maybe it's rhetorical now because I kind of know the answer, why do you call it the Freedom Plaza? It goes directly to the heart of the direction of our country. New York City, in many respects, is the heart of the country. New York City has always been the center. We drive the country economically. Uh, so many people from so many different walks of life live here, work here. We have some of the best educational facilities in the world here, some of the largest businesses in the world here, whether it's the financial industry or otherwise. People from all over the world come to New York City to experience the amenities we have to offer here. I think New York City and New York as a whole has a very large role to play in the promotion of, of democracy. Typically, by the way, that's left to the federal government. The federal government is seen as the driver of the morality compass. But I'm not sure we can rely upon that anymore. And so I want to empower this city, the people of this city, to jump into this conversation about the preservation of democracy and freedom. And so we want to call this, and we are calling this, Freedom Plaza. Michael, let's give the listeners kind of a 30,000-foot explanation of what Freedom Plaza is going to be and why it needs to be now. It's going to be an integrated entertainment district. Everyone is talking about casino. This is not so much about the casino as it is a large group of amenities and necessary housing being brought to the city at this time. The casino is the economic driver for some of the things we want to do on this site. It occupies less than 10% of the total square footage of the site. And it's site. underground, so it's not even ominous. Totally unobtrusive. You will not even be able to see it from First Avenue. The site, of course, is on First Avenue between 38th and 41st Street. You know, people have a fear of the unknown, and they're thinking casino. Perhaps they're thinking about the lights and, and, and the water fountains of Las Vegas. Uh, that's not what we're about. We're not about flash. We're not about show. We're about really what we can, what can we do to the community and how could the casino give us the opportunity from a financial standpoint to bring back to the community things that it needs? Well, I'm going to bring you down from the 30,000 feet right now because you mentioned the financial aspects of the casino. I would imagine that a casino in comparison to a lot of other business ventures can drive a tremendous amount of capital back into the city where it's located. We've been meeting with the community in and around that district, and we have told them that the tax revenues generated from this project going to the state as well as the city will be significant, hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars. You know what the community says to us? What about us? We're not going to see any of that. And so we've planned for that. We're going to create a community investment fund. 2% of our net profits, a minimum of $5 million every year, will go to a nonprofit organization set up, controlled, run by the community itself. We'll have hands off. And that $5 million, by the way, will start when we're awarded the license, not when the casino is completed, which will take 
frankly, three or four years. Before you were even operating. Investment in the community that the community could use to enhance what it is that they already have. Correct. A minimum of $5 million, regardless of what our net profits are, we expect it to be a lot higher than that. The community can use it to enhance education, sports activities for youth, arts, whatever it is in that that district they think they need. If the profits are more, the 2% that you talked about, then it could be 10 million, it could be 20 million. Easily, yes. Wow, that's fantastic. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. And now, with that in mind, I'd like to share that in addition to my mission to be the best real estate advisor, consultant, and broker I can be while helping you sell, purchase, and finance investment real estate, I will also help you comply with New York City Local Law 152. That's LL152, Periodic Inspection of Gas Piping Systems. This law applies to every building, gas or not, that is not a one-family or two-family residential dwelling. That's every apartment building from three units and up, every condominium and co-op building, every hotel, every industrial building, every freestanding retail building, and more. Yes, every building except one family and two family residential dwellings. It's been around since 2020, and so has my company, Keep My Gas. Learn more about the law and how to comply at www.ll152.myc. That's www.ll152.myc. Or I'm just a phone call away. 917-232-8529. I'll explain everything, get you a quote. So if you haven't complied yet, you can do so before it's too late. What else can I say? Solutions for real estate, it's in my DNA. And now back to the show. So now let's go back to that uh, 30,000 view. We're going to take the elevator up. You said it's going to be an entertainment district. So what, what kind of entertainment is going to be there? In addition uh, to the casino, which I said is below grade, we're going to build a hotel, a 1,200-room hotel. By the way, additional hotel rooms in that area is sorely needed. It's going to be unusual. It's going to be a five-star hotel, but it's going to be branded in two different ways. We're bringing in a brand called Banyan Tree, which is a very well-known hotel chain known for wellness and spa treatments in Asia and Europe. It'll be their first branding of a hotel in the United States. And they're going to be responsible for managing 200 suites within the hotel, as well as the 35,000 square feet wellness center. The remainder of the hotel will be managed by our partners, the Mohegan Tribe. In conjunction with the hotel, we're going to have approximately 15 food and beverage services, ranging from a food court to three, four, five-star restaurants. Also sorely needed in that area, there's very little in the way of uh, commercial businesses there, very little in the way of restaurants and other services. And I actually lived over there. And, and unless you you got past like 50th Street, below 50th Street, there really wasn't much going on. There isn't. So we're going to bring a whole new set of opportunities and amenities to the community. 
while keeping, and this was, this was not easy to do, but we have wonderful architects involved, we're going to keep a 4.7-acre park on the site. It's going to be a multi-use park, and it's going to be run by an advisory board of community leaders. So we're going to develop the park. We're going to maintain the park at our cost, but it's actually going to be run by the community. So if they want to have music there, if they want to have sports events there, a dog run park there, it's their choice as to how they want to use the park. Then, of course, as uh, you probably know, uh, we have committed to build two residential towers, 1,350 units. Uh, 38% of that will be affordable housing. Now, is it all going to be rentals or is there going to be condos there? There'll be a combination of rentals and, and condos. This is the largest affordable housing effort in that part of the city in history. And then the affordable uh, units, will they also be a blend of condos and rentals or will it all be affordable rentals? Rentals. The centerpiece of this is the Museum of Freedom and Democracy. An idea that I had almost 20 years ago, before, long before, we face this crisis in our country and internationally, the growth I referred to earlier of authoritarianism. And this design is based on the old Colosseums in Greece, the birthplace of democracy. We will have a large outdoor part of it where people can overlook the river, talk, listen to speeches. And inside, it's going to be heavily devoted to virtual reality. You may go into a room and be present during the debate of the Declaration of Independence or the Bill of Rights. We will have antiquities and other documents that are relevant to the principles of democracy. In addition to virtual reality and events in the Museum of Freedom and Democracy, we will have artifacts like sections of the Berlin Wall. Stefan Zolviev, after the wall fell, fell down, purchased a number of sections of the wall. Those sections are all filled with graffiti, statements in support of, of freedom and democracy. That is a foundational piece of the legacy of democracy. It is indeed. And it carries with it the energy of the people that drew that graffiti on those walls. Not only their energy, it carries with them the memory of those that died right. trying to cross that world to gain access to freedom. Now, this is something that all the people in the community will have easy access to, like they have easy access to walking a couple of blocks away now, right? Absolutely. For our listeners that aren't quite clear on what affordable housing means, how, how is that going to work? Like, how, how does it become affordable for the people that will actually eventually live there? The affordable housing will be designed for people that make a decent living but can't really afford to have decent housing in the city. We're going to provide about 8,000 full-time, good-paying union jobs on the site. Those people themselves uh, are going to need housing. So will some of the people that fill those jobs actually be able to live at the site? I would certainly hope so. And, and, and it's based on a lottery, obviously. So there's, it's, it's not excluding anybody or including anybody specifically. Some affordable projects includes certain categories of people based on where they live or what, like, for instance, there's going to be something at Five Wall Trade Center where if you are a survivor or a family member of a survivor 
of 9-11, you're going to get priority to be in that affordable section of Fiber World Trade Center. Is there anything similar like that going on with this? We want a level playing field for folks that are in need of affordable housing. And we don't want to give any special privileges or advantages to anyone. But it is my hope that some of the folks that work at the site will be able to get into the affordable housing. Well, that would be fantastic. I mean, one thing I love about the five boroughs of New York City and our state in general is that there's so much diversity and there's probably nowhere else in the country. Well, there's, I, I know there's nowhere else in the country, but I would venture to say there's also nowhere else in the world where you have as many different languages, nationalities, religions, food, cultures. I mean, you're basically exposed to planet Earth in this tight little area of the five boroughs of New York City. So it would be great if some of the people that are part of those cultures and part of those different demographics but can't afford to live where they work would be able to actually take an elevator down to the street and walk over to where it is that they're working. Indeed. Let's go back to the casino. What what are the major pushbacks on the casino and who who specifically is pushing back and why do you think they're doing that and what would you like to share with them that you know will help them understand that this truly is a positive thing whether it's our site or the other sites the various community groups do have legitimate concerns they are concerned about traffic they're concerned about safety and security on the traffic side we have done traffic studies that we'll be releasing very shortly uh, that show that uh, the uh, number of cars, the number of vehicles actually under this plan would be reduced from the prior plan. You may know that we have zoning already on this property to build four towers. And in our study, we did a comparison between the traffic created by that scenario as opposed to our scenario here. And we learned that the traffic flow would be less so under this plan. And I'll explain why. Not a lot of people will get in a car to drive to this site. Those that live in the boroughs typically will take public transportation or take Uber or or taxi. Those coming from outside the country or outside New York State, they don't rent cars to drive around Manhattan. They too will take public transportation or other means to get to the site. The traffic survey we did shows that perhaps less than 25% of the people visiting the site will use their own vehicles. And we're not going to have any entrances to the site on First Avenue. The entrances to the site will be on the FDR service road and on 38th Street and 41st Street. So we're reducing the flow of cars on First Avenue. With regard to the security and safety, this will be one of the safest zones in all of Manhattan because Mohegan Sun, I don't know if you've ever visited their facility in Connecticut or any one of the other eight casinos that they they own or manage. They're experts at making it so that the public are comfortable in the environment, are safe in the environment. We'll have our own security force. We'll have our own cameras. We're asking the city to actually put a police substation on the site. So we're going to create a cone of security and safety at the site. 
And so it's an educational process to talk to the community and let them get comfortable with the notion that the amenities we create, that the financial incentives we create far outweigh their concerns. And I agree with you that that's really, really important. I live down in the Battery Park City area, and I'm due west of the World Trade Center. And there's a demarcation point where when I enter the neighborhood, I feel much safer because of the high level of security that exists there. Because no one's going to mess with that area. You can't walk 100 feet and not see a police vehicle or some sort of high-level security. And I imagine that's what it's going to be here like at the casino. Even more so. And as you may know, Bill, we we have an outdoor art exhibit on the site right now called Field of Lights. We're having thousands of visitors are coming uh, to see the exhibit. We have security on the site. None of them have felt uncomfortable. Uh, None of them have expressed any concerns about their safety and security within this protected cone that we've created. Going back to the affordable for a moment, are you using any kind of special tax incentives? We had the 421A program in New York State that expired. And while we're hoping the state legislature comes up with a replacement for it, which is being pushed by Governor Hochul and also Mayor Adams, are you using any kind of tax credits or uh, tax incentives or any kind of programs to help build the affordable housing? Or is having the casino enabling you to build the affordable housing or something else completely different? The casino is the economic driver. Uh, We are not seeking any government subsidies for any part of this project. So all all that real estate is going to pay regular real estate taxes. Absolutely. So you've got this casino, which is providing, as you said before, could be hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue. And then you've got the the actual real estate itself paying regular taxes because it's not being subsidized. That's correct. Wow. And we would hope that that be the case for any applicant for a license, that there be no uh, state, federal, or city tax incentives. Now, how does something like this get funded? Well, we have financial partners. Uh, Of course, we ourselves are a very large player, as you well know, in the real estate market. You acquired the site about 20 years ago. And then you sold some of it off, and they built the, the famous copper building. We also built a, a, a residential building on the site. Of course, from uh, the current uh, plot we're talking about, 685 First Avenue was part of that old Con Ed site. And that was our first structure that we put up. It was finished in 2021. All right, so, so the First Avenue building is yours. The copper building is somebody else's. And uh, how many units is that? The First Avenue building? 680 units. And it's a combination of uh, condos and rentals or just rentals? A combination of rentals and, and condos. This site in which you want to build the towers and the casino and the park uh, and the museum and the retail and the restaurants is not your first rodeo, not your second rodeo. And the Soliviev Group has really been involved in developing for quite some time. T- tell us a little bit about the history. 
So indeed, we had uh, developed many buildings in uh, on the east side. Including the one we're in right now, which is 9 West 57th Street. Yeah, this is probably the best-known commercial building in, in New York City. Well, can I share something with you? Of course. When I was walking here this morning from 57th and 7th, the Q train, and I saw the building, and I knew what the address was that I was going to, and I looked up and I said, wow, what a beautiful building. And then I realized, oh, this is the building I'm going into. <laughs> so I, It is a beautiful yeah. building. So I came into the building. And then when I walked through the door of your offices, and I'm, I'm sorry, listeners, that this is audio only, but I am looking at everything north of 57th Street, almost dead center in Central Park. What, what an amazing structure this is. So tell us a little bit about this one and then the other things that the Soloviev group are doing. Let me take that in reverse. We, we've been active on the Upper East Side uh, for some years now, uh, building and managing structures. But most importantly, from the, the point of view of, of our what we want to do there, seven members of the Soloviev family live in that district. So anything we do there impacts their daily lives. You have skin in the game. Yeah, exactly. As far as the building we're in now, 9 West 57th, this building was finished in 1974. Sheldon Solo built this building. Sheldon was an immigrant. His father came over. His father was a bricklayer. They had no money. They managed to put together uh, a few dollars to buy a small building in Far Rockaway. And, and this is around what time? What year? This would have been in the late 60s. Okay. And that began their uh, venture into the world, or Sheldon's venture into the world of real estate. He was a visionary. When he built this building, uh, which is a, uh, as you know, it's a curved building, there really weren't any other in New York City. And he was roundly criticized by the architectural community who thought that the building was ugly, although the public reaction to the building was very, very favorable. And years later, he won awards for design of, of the building. The building was designed by Skidmore. But what Sheldon really focused on is the integration of architecture and art. At the very beginning, when he built this building, he put some of his own personal artwork in the building and outside the building. If you go out the back of the building on 58th Street, you'll see a sculpture, uh, which is a very famous uh, sculpture by uh, Joan Miro. It's called the Moonbird. He was the first one to take these very expensive and well-known sculptures and put them outside the building, as well as inside the building. When you came in the lobby of the building, you probably saw a Giacometti statue. His vision was to create something new, from a visual standpoint, integrated with artwork. And part of his collection is in a gallery in this building on the street level, which is open to the public. Well, that public space is beautiful, and so are the sculptures, and I did notice them. But one of the things that I noticed most when I stood outside the front of the building before I came in the front door to come up to your offices is it's a beautiful blue sky day. And when you look at the glass at the front of the building and the way it curves, it actually carries you to the sky. And 
the way it sets back against that background of the blue sky, and I would imagine all the different kinds of light that you could experience during the course of a day and a night, it really is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And so I encourage anyone who wants to know more about the building to come down and enjoy that public space and do what I did, stand at the foot of the building and look up and watch how that curve just carries you up into the sky, almost like a virtual elevator. That was his intent by creating the curved facade. But remember, this was 1974. Right. Well, when you said it was built, it was finished in 1974, a little earlier, <laughs> I said to myself, if you asked me to guess, I would have said the 90s. All the buildings during that period in the 70s, 60s, they were square, rectangle. Uh, he really was a risk taker. He hired the architectural firm of Skidmore to collaborate on this building, and he wanted to do something futuristic, and he accomplished it. He absolutely did. So, Michael, we're, you know, we're probably getting close to the uh, end of our episode, and I, I, I think the listeners are probably just completely blown away by this project that you're about to do, and I really hope that it comes to fruition and that you manifest it into reality. And I want to bring up one more aspect of it, which actually exists now, which is really like the transitional period to it being the dirt site that it is, and then the beautiful project and complex that it will be. And I read an article uh, recently, and I had goosebumps when I was reading it. And it's the story about the opening night gala of Bruce Monroe's Field of Light that you put on the site. And... After some heartfelt stories were told, people got to speak, Stefan himself flipped the switch to light up artist Bruce Monroe's field of light on the site. Did that night mark a point in this journey for you? It does in several different respects. The city's been through a very difficult period, not only for New York City, but for many cities. We've been through covid we have a migrant crisis. There are crime issues in the city. We wanted to do something, and this was done by our foundation. This is a charitable gift to the city. We're not charging anyone for entry into the field of lights, and it's going to be there for a year. We wanted to bring back a sense of hope, a sense of resilience to the city and to the people of the city, particularly around the holiday times. We opened just before the Christmas holidays. Yeah, I believe it was December 15th. Exactly. And people walking through, I'll never forget that night, people walking through were in tears. I remember specifically a couple that got engaged right there and then. That picture will remain with me the rest of my life because a city that has been through so much and a city that has so much to offer, if we can bring a little bit of hope, some smiles to the faces of the folks around the city, and have them leave that site with a sense of well-being, then I think we'll have accomplished our mission uh, in sponsoring the Field of Lights. Well, there's no doubt that with what Soloviev and you and Stefan and his father have done already, and what you're hoping to do in the future is adding to the resilience that we always witness here in New York City. God bless this city, and indeed, let's toast to the resilience. There's nothing like being a New Yorker. No. And I, I was born in Long Island City, 
So I am a native New Yorker. <laughs> and I was born in Brooklyn. And I am as well, and I'm proud of it. Yeah. And you know what? Being born in Brooklyn, you're probably a little bit more of a native New Yorker than I am. <laughs> well, you know, I, I tell people there are only two types of people in the world today. Those that live in Brooklyn and those that want to live in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's funny. And I've never lived in Brooklyn, but I'm happy to say I've lived in Manhattan uh, for about uh, 10 plus years now. And it was on my bucket list, you know, because it grew up on Long Island. You know, they left Queens right away, went to Long Island. And uh, I just love living here. And and when I sit in your offices and I look out at this view of the east side and the west side and uh, northern Manhattan and every, and Central Park, and there's a beautiful American flag on top of the building uh, just beyond us that's blowing in the wind. And it's just a, it's, it's a symbol of uh, resilience and hope that I don't think uh, will ever, ever die in this city. It just keeps coming back. Well said. Well, we're going we're gonna to close now, Michael, but I want to ask you one more question. If you woke up tomorrow and something in our city changed, what do you wish it would be? I wish it would be the center of a new and strong movement promoting democratic values. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. And, and I got to say, that was quite illuminating. Bill, thank you so much. It was a pleasure being with you today. And I hope to join you on the next hundredth episode of your podcast. Looking forward to that, Michael. Well, there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Definitely check out the show notes for today's episode for a wealth of important information, and please subscribe. To do so, search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. Spotify? Yes, you'll find Realty Speak there as well. Please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. How? Do an email blast. Include as part of your newsletter or on your website blog. Post from your LinkedIn, Facebook, and or X profiles. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, having a New York City Local Law 152 gas piping inspection done, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R. Com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.